Ladies and gentlemen, students, friends of LSE, my name is Professor Paul Kelly and I'm head of the government department at LSE. And I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to tonight's lecture as part of British government at LSE. Note, British, not Scottish. <laughs> Although perhaps in the course of time, we might need such a series. British Government at LSE is an initiative that brings together LSE research and researchers with those who are engaged in government and politics in these aisles. It also serves as a focus for an engagement with some of the main players in current British politics. Tonight's no exception. Our speaker tonight needs no introduction, unless, of course, you've never heard of Scotland, in which case the lecture should be interesting. And I should add that when I mentioned to a colleague that I was introducing Alex Salmon tonight, the colleague asked, who? <laughs> so I thought, everybody knows, but apparently not in the LSE. <laughs> it's a London thing. Okay, Alex Salmond is one of the most recognisable figures in politics in any part of these aisles and a dominant figure in Scottish politics. He's Scotland's first minister, leader of the SNP administration in the Scottish Parliament. Born in Scotland, educated at St Andrews, he's an economist by training, appropriate for him to be here, beginning in 1978 in the Government Economic Service before moving on to the Royal Bank of Scotland, becoming Royal Bank economist in 1984. In 87, he was elected for the parliamentary seat of Banff and Buchan and became convener of the Scottish National Party in 1990. In 1999, he was elected MSP for Banff and Buchan and leader of the SNP opposition. He stood down in 2001, but returned to Scottish politics and the Scottish Parliament in 2007 as SNP's First Minister. In 2011, he led the SNP to the quite extraordinary achievement of forming a majority administration in a system that's designed to create only coalitions. This is an achievement by anybody's standards. Our interest as British government at LSE is that LSE remains the focus for some of the most important debates in contemporary politics. And tonight's speaker is a leading figure on perhaps the most important of those debates, namely the very issue about the future shape of government in Britain and Scotland's place in the Union, an issue that I would regard as perhaps in the long term one of the most important, perhaps even overshadowing the current economic crisis. So in those circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, the Right Honourable Alex Salmond, MSP, First Minister of Scotland. Well, uh, thank you very much, Paul, and uh, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, you know, that was a very kind uh, introduction, Paul, and if you give me the, the name of that colleague who had never recognised me, then uh, things will be, be okay. <laughs> now, it is uh, uh, an honour to, to be here at the London School of Economics. Uh, this institution has been at the, the very heart of debates on economic social policy in these islands uh, ever since it was founded by George Bernard Shaw, Beatrice and Sidney Webb and others uh, in the late 19th century. Now, I note that uh, only earlier this month, Beatrice Webb's journals were put online by the LSE Library. If I may say so, Paul, it took you an inordinate amount of time to manage that simple achievement, but nonetheless, well done. <laughs> uh, the, 
they prove, however, uh, for those who have consulted them, uh, how often we repeat the mistakes of uh, previous generations. In September 1931, she wrote that, quote, we know now the depth of delusion that the financial world have either the knowledge or goodwill to guard the safety of the country over whose pecuniary interests they preside. She also complained that the financial elite of her time had made an appalling mess of their own business, involving their country in a loss of business and prestige. Plus a change. Now, new eras throw up new challenges. However, the London School of Economics uh, has been at the forefront uh, of addressing uh, these new challenges. Uh, for example, you host the uh, uh, Grand uh, Grantham Research Centre for Climate Change and the Environment, headed, of course, by Lord Stern, whose review into climate change uh, made the point that action on climate change is fiscally responsible uh, as well as morally just. The costs of moving to a low-carbon economy are actually much less than the costs of not doing so. Now, this is an argument uh, that I'm going to return to when setting out how an independent Scotland could play a leading role in the efforts to tackle climate change. But the main purpose uh, of my speech is to set out how Scotland is economically constrained by its current constitutional position and to give Westminster six of the best. That's uh, outlining six key economic opportunities to support growth and promote jobs uh, that Scotland could seize when she becomes independent. Mind you, the prospect of giving Westminster six of the best in other worlds is not beyond people's imagination, but that's what uh, the purpose of this lecture is about. Firstly, I, I want to talk about, however, our policy response to the ongoing financial and economic crisis. Now, LSE is again a, an appropriate place to do this. It was central to the debates uh, about the response to the Depression in the 1930s when Hayek argued strongly against Keynes uh, and the Cambridge uh, economists. Now, perhaps uh, as someone who's very much in the Keynesian camp on this issue, perhaps I'm speaking at the wrong institution tonight. Uh, but nonetheless, the LSE was central to, to these debates at that time. There is, uh, in my view, something deeply counterproductive uh, about the current United Kingdom government's obsession with uh, austerity. Uh, as Keynes uh, was once reported as saying, uh, when the facts change, I change my mind. Uh, perhaps the worst part of the Chancellor of the Exchequer's inability to adapt uh, to change circumstances, uh, it was never going to be credible or possible uh, to sustain a recovery uh, on export-led growth once it became clear that the United Kingdom's major export market, the Eurozone, uh, was enduring momentous challenges of its own. Indeed, the decision by Moody's on Monday to put the UK's credit rating on a negative outlook is a stark reminder that deficit reduction without economic growth is almost impossible to achieve, regardless of whether you ascribe to the Austrian school or the Cambridge school. Point one of the analysis from Moody's attributed that decision to the quote, increased uncertainty regarding the pace of fiscal consolidation in the United Kingdom due to materially weaker growth prospects over the next few years with risk skewed to the downside, unquote. Now, uh, I was uh, interested yesterday when the, the Chancellor was responding to this rather disappointing uh, view from Moody's that in his response to the report, he, he seemed to have missed that very first point uh, in the Moody's analysis, which is strange, partly because it's of such importance, 
And after all, it was point one in the analysis as presented. It was and should be and is a salutary reminder that even rating agencies, which might be expected to trend towards Hayek rather than Keynes on the subject of deficit reduction, are aware of the perils of low growth. Now, that lack of growth, of course, has its human cost, and that human cost is reflected in today's United Kingdom unemployment figures of 2.7 million. Now, the Scottish Government is still deeply aware, as are many, many places throughout these islands, of the lasting damage done to communities uh, by the mass unemployment of the 1980s. For that reason, we have done everything possible within the powers that we have to support economic growth and to create opportunity, especially for young people. In fact, one of the, the few glimmers of light in today's employment figures in Scotland is that they show the first stabilisation in many quarters for youth unemployment. Now, we have a, a range of uh, policies designed to underpin security in these uh, difficult times. We have a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies in the public sector. That doesn't mean there won't be a reduction and isn't a reduction in the public sector workforce, but what it does mean is that there is security for those who are working within the public sector. We have a policy of a living wage of £7.30 an hour throughout the public sector and the National Health Service, and we have uh, made a commitment to provide certain services which are not prioritised in, in other parts of these islands. One of these, of course, is uh, free tuition fees uh, in Scotland where we still see education as an investment in the nation's future rather than just a price to be borne by individuals. We also have given a guarantee of a, a training place to all 16 to 19 year olds who are not in employment, education or training, in addition to providing 125,000 modern apprenticeships in Scotland over the next five years, every single one of which is attached to a job, to employment. Now, these steps on their own don't necessarily alter headline youth unemployment figures, partly because they rather strangely include full-time students looking for part-time work. But they are designed, and designed completely and singularly, to forestall the emergence of another lost generation. The policies that we pursue are designed to boost family spending power, make it easy as it can be in these difficult circumstances to plan their budget. That helps promote security, sustain confidence. Undoubtedly, in my estimation, the most economically dangerous part of the United Kingdom's spending plans is the slashing of capital spending in real terms by about a third over the next spending review period. And although the comparatively minor additional capital spending announced in the autumn budget statement was welcome, over 70% of that will be delayed till after the autumn of 2013. Now, despite the significant constraint placed on us in the last spending review, we are working to safeguard capital investment in Scotland. We have switched, even in these difficult times, some £750 million pounds, eh, over the spending review period from revenue to capital. As a result, our capital investment will now rise in Scotland over the next three years, but from a Treasury-set and very low baseline. And it will take time for that switch to come into effect. As part of this, the Scottish Futures Trust has set up a pipeline of non-profit delivering projects for local authorities in NHS Scotland, a direct encouraging private investment in local schools and hospitals. We're also encouraging that investment, for example, by establishing the Scottish Investment Bank in 2010, 
and maintaining the most supportive business tax environment anywhere in the United Kingdom, supporting our development agencies to create an attractive climate for inward investment. But again, we are stifled by lack of powers. For example, the ongoing failure of the United Kingdom banks to meet their Project Merlin targets for small businesses have done far more harm uh, to business investment than the Scottish Investment Bank can repair. By comparison, the UK government, the central government policy in the UK seems at best at worst on a passive accept acceptance of the consequences of austerity or at best in hope that quantitative easing on its own by the Bank of England will come to the rescue. Now, the Bank of England, as we know, has decided to extend its asset-based purchase scheme by a further £50 billion to support the economy. Uh, and let me be clear that the work of the Bank of England through this crisis has helped protect the economy at a very difficult time. However, as Keynes once indicated, using monetary policy alone can be like pushing on a piece of string. Quantitative easing should only be one part of the response to economic difficulties. It requires genuine support from wider economic policy, in particular from fiscal policy, and the half measures attached to the Chancellor's autumn statement were clearly insufficient to do that job. For example, despite quantitative easing, net lending continues to fall. As a result, business investment, as we know, remains 16% lower than pre-investment levels. And within this, there are clear divergences between different types of company. Large companies, companies which can bypass banks by accessing markets directly, have benefited from the quantitative easing programme. In contrast, small and medium-sized businesses don't have that option, and there remains a clear market failure uh, that needs to be addressed. Over the year to November of last year, net lending to small and medium-sized businesses across the UK fell by 6.1% on the back of a 2.2% fall the previous year. Now, small and medium-sized businesses are vital to the long-term success of the economy. They're an essential source of innovation and will create many of the key job opportunities in the years ahead. There's therefore an urgent need for an effective mechanism from government to boost lending to small businesses, something that was obvious four years ago and should have happened four years ago. The last time I was in, uh, in London uh, delivering the Hugo Young Lecture, I argued that an independent Scotland could be a beacon for progressive social opinion across these islands. Indeed, I argued that a devolved Scotland was ready, in some aspects, something of a beacon. We have far more discretion in social policy at the present moment than we do in economic policy. But I would argue that the actions we've been able to take as a government, even within confined economic powers, have helped to mitigate the worst consequences of economic uncertainty. The recession in Scotland was shorter and shallower than the rest of the UK, a 5.9% downturn, severe enough, over five quarters rather than 7.2 over six quarters. That hasn't always been the experience of Scotland uh, in recessions, and therefore is an important aspect. My submission is that with independence we could do much, much more, uh, and potentially become a beacon in progressive economic policy as well as progressive social policy. Our submission as an independent Scotland should remain within a sterling zone, but have control over fiscal policy. Now, in recent weeks, uh, sources close to 
George Osborne have apparently said that Scotland might be uh, prevented uh, from uh, using the pound. Then, of course, these were the same sources who, who told the Daily Mirror uh, that the pandas uh, would be seized from Edinburgh Zoo. <laughs> uh, I've decided to grant political asylum uh, to the pandas just to secure uh, their position. And then, of course, William Hague said, uh, William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, said that one of the consequences of Scottish independence uh, would be that UK embassies would stop promoting Scottish whisky. <laughs> somehow, somehow I believe that the international whisky industry will probably get by <laughs> without the support of all of these diplomats <laughs> at embassy uh, reception. But, you know, this stuff rather like the stuff on sterling, is nonsensical. No nation can stop another from using a fully tradable currency, even if they wanted to. In addition, an independent Scotland actually has title uh, to part ownership of both the Bank of England uh, and of sterling. Uh, incidentally, the Bank of England was founded by uh, a, a Scot. I, I saw his portrait when I visited the Bank of England uh, uh, today. But uh, in addition to this, and maybe this is the, the real point, why would any sensible minister want to stop Scotland from sharing a currency with the other countries in these islands? The rest of the UK would benefit from Scotland's continued membership of a sterling zone. Oil and gas production boosted the UK balance of payments, not government revenue, but the balance of payments, by £32,000 million in 2010, uh, about half of the UK's balance of payments deficit. And Scottish whisky exports alone, the William Hague may like to remember, contributed almost £4 billion in 2011. There's also another £20 billion or so in other Scottish exports of business finance and export services. So why would any United Kingdom government seriously want to do without the support that those sectors provide for sterling's value? Our onshore economy, never mind our offshore economy, is approximately 8% of the UK's. Uh, broadly equivalent to the size of the entire United Kingdom financial sector, and even excluding oil and gas output, with the third richest part of the UK outside London and the southeast of England. Now we come to the nub of the argument. Some people say uh, a currency union would prevent an independent Scotland from using its fiscal powers. And of course, we would undoubtedly need to demonstrate fiscal responsibility as any sensible nation does. But Scotland is prosperous enough to stand, prosperous enough to stand on its own two feet. Indeed, the official statistics, the Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland report, uh, demonstrates that from 2005 to 2010, Scotland was in a stronger relative fiscal position in the UK by a total of £7.2 billion. Uh, and last weekend, a study by the Independent Centre for Economic and Business Research, uh, a body which not always has been favourable to the Scottish National Party in the past, uh, confirmed that Scotland receives no net subsidy uh, from the Treasury. So Scotland would therefore be able to meet any fiscal obligations of a currency union. Scotland and the UK and the rest of the UK have very similar economies in terms of prosperity levels. Even in the non-oil economy, Scotland's productivity is virtually identical to the UK average. Uh, therefore, a currency zone for Scotland and the rest of the UK would be a very different creature from the Eurozone, which cover territories from the Ruhr in Germany to Kalamata in the Peloponnese. Actually, saying that makes me think that 
Kalamata sounds rather attractive, <laughs> place where olives grow. Uh, but unfortunately, its productivity in industrial terms uh, is somewhat less than the Ruhr Valley. A sterling zone would make sense for Scotland and for the rest of the UK. Indeed, a recent opinion poll have showed majority support for that in both Scotland and England. So let's assume that no sensible person would argue against a currency zone. What independence would give Scotland is the ability to set our own fiscal and economic policy within the context of a stable monetary policy. It would give us the flexibility to provide specifically Scottish policies for specifically Scottish challenges. And above all, above all, it would allow us to promote sustainable economic growth. Now, tonight, as I said, as I promised, I would give the UK government six of the best by outlining just six examples of the fiscal opportunities that an independent Scotland would have at its disposal. The first of these is capital investment. Now, I've already laid out how we are trying, struggling, making sure that we act to mitigate uh, the major decline in capital investment, which is the consequence of the Treasury's approach to these things. Uh, with determination that we have to safeguard such investment, and of course most countries can use borrowing powers for such purpose. However, at the moment, the Scottish Government has no borrowing powers whatsoever. We actually have less responsibility than a local authority, or for that matter, Transport for London, in the respect of borrowing. Of all the examples I could give as to where this would come in extremely useful at the present moment, I think perhaps the best is Scottish Water. Scottish Water, which is in public ownership in Scotland, has been a substantial success story. It's managed its infrastructure well, it's reduced water rates for both business and consumers, it has the lowest in the United Kingdom at the present moment, and last winter, for example, was able to send 160,000 litres of water to Northern Ireland during the water scarcity in the province. It is on any reasonable measure a social, economic and environmental success. The Scottish Water also has a massive capital investment programme. With borrowing powers, it could have the flexibility to accelerate that investment over the next two years, pumping demand into the economy, enhancing its own asset base. Why doesn't it do so? Well, it's currently prevented from doing so by Treasury rules, which effectively penalise the Scottish Government if Scottish Water decides to borrow money. That is unfair, irrational, inefficient. What makes it particularly absurd is that Scottish Water, of course, could borrow money cheaply and easily. It has a large asset base to borrow against. It is also totally reliable cash flow in the form of water charges. If Scottish Water were allowed to borrow money, it would soon develop a bond rating comparable to, let's say, Network Rail, or perhaps even better than the United Kingdom Treasury itself. Secondly, control of taxation is not just about the general rate of taxation. It's also about nuances within the system supporting specific economic sectors that allow the possibility of large economic return. A good example of this at the present moment are the creative industries, one of the industries of the future and a sector in which Scotland deservedly enjoys a worldwide reputation. And Jonathan Mills is an entrepreneurial Australian and a director and director of the Edinburgh International Festival. He was stressing the importance of the creative industries and he said that tax incentives would be valuable, quote, to allow Scotland's cultural sector 
to continue to flourish and expand. If we take a wide view of the creative industries and look at perhaps video games as a specific example of an industry where Scotland punches above its weight with clusters of companies in Dundee, Edinburgh and Glasgow, internationally recognised university courses and world famous successes such as Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> which I'm sure every single one of you played in your formative years uh, before you went on to more peaceable games uh, in the next uh, generation. But this success story is at risk. It's at risk because computer games is a highly mobile, fast-changing industry. There are tax incentives in offer in Canada, United States, Australia, and a number of other countries. TIGA, the chief computer games industry body in the UK, has stated that UK government is, quote, failing to invest in the Scottish and the UK games sector, unquote. And that Scottish independence could absolutely reshape games industry policy uh, across Scotland. A, an example uh, of a UK body which is developing a favourable view uh, towards uh, Scottish independence. I merely mention that in terms of the naming of your courses that you were mentioning in the introduction. Now, the submission is if Scotland had control of the levers of growth, we could provide the right tax environment to boost successors like this, which are of major importance to Scotland, but often fall below the United Kingdom government's radar screen. Thirdly, independence would allow us to support the overall business environment, not just specific sectors. My view on independent Scotland would compete for inward investment primarily by advertising the quality of our workforce, our natural resources, the quality of life, our communications links. We have no wish to enter a race to the bottom with anyone. However, we have to face reality, and metropolises like London and large countries can exert major centrifugal forces which draws power towards them. Small countries, regional economies need a fiscal edge to encourage decision-making centres to settle. Those headquarters and decision-making centres in turn become a hub of prosperity. Now, for this reason, the Scottish Government has modelled the impact of a 3% reduction in corporation tax. Our modelling concludes that such a reduction could support 27,000 jobs over the medium term while supporting the rebalancing of the economy principally by the development and boost of exports. A fourth initiative which we could use to boost growth is to vary specific taxes which have a broad impact on the economy. We have a very good example of this in the last few years in Scotland. The Scottish Government increased the ROC, Renewable Obligation Certificate for Wave and Tidal Power, the cost of which was negligible uh, since the sector was and is tiny in production terms and ROCs are paid on production. However, the benefits have been enormous in encouraging companies in these industries to invest in research in Scotland. We now have the position where a majority of the world's wave and tidal devices are currently being tested in Scottish waters. Air passenger duty would be another example of a specific tax initiative that could deliver significant economic benefit. Uh, at the moment, one part of the United Kingdom has airports that are already at capacity. Uh, that leads us to uh, the challenge, either we can follow the Mayor of London in building lots more airports all over the place, uh, or alternatively, we can find a way to encourage other parts of these islands to have more direct links. It makes no sense to have a common rate for air passenger duty. 
Michael O'Leary is the chief executive of Ryanair. And I have to confess, I'm one of probably the only political leader in Europe who has managed to extract money out of Michael O'Leary, not from my political party, uh, but I persuaded him, along with others, uh, to sponsor a race in the Duke of Roxburgh, that's the Prince of Wales charity race meeting at Press, Perth Racecourse uh, last year. A fundamental success it was. Michael O'Leary, as well as being a highly successful chief executive, uh, has a string of racehorses. He didn't actually send any of his racehorses to, uh, to Perth, but nonetheless he uh, sponsored one of the, the races. But he said of air passenger duty in his own business, in my view, Scotland and its tourist industry would benefit dramatically from having control over air passenger duty. Uh, that would significantly increase flights, frequencies, connectivity and jobs for Scotland. The realisation, perhaps, of the potential attractiveness of a devolved air passenger duty led the United Kingdom Treasury, of course, to veto it being in the Scotland Bill. This accords with what I've come to believe is the Treasury maxim. Devolve as little as possible. When you do, make sure it's something that can't be used. If all else fails, attach enough rules to it to stop whatever you're forced to devolve from working. I started uh, my economic career as a, a GES economist in the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries for Scotland. I was assistant agricultural economist, uh, probably the lowest grade of the government economic service, for which I was paid, incidentally, £3,114 a year. Not a week, but a month. <laughs> I hear. You tend to remember your first salary. It's like your first car number or your first uh, phone number. But I came to believe and develop a theory uh, about the United Kingdom Treasury when I was an economist in the then Scottish office. And that was basically that there are three great lies in life. Uh, the first is the checks in the post. The second is, darling, I'll respect you in the morning. And the third is, I'm from the United Kingdom Treasury and I'm desperately trying to help Scotland. The Treasury's approach to air passenger duty and its non-devolution holds this maxim still to be true. The fifth additional opportunity we could seize under independence is to make the best possible use of energy resources. And note I say energy resources, not just hydrocarbon resources. These resources are unparalleled in the European continent. We have 25% of Europe's tidal power potential, 25% of its offshore wind potential, and 10% of its wave potential. That's not bad for a, a nation with less than 1% of Europe's population. Uh, I uh, have been a number of visits to China in the, uh, in the recent past, and I'm fond of, uh, of saying when uh, in China and pointing out that China is a, a country of 1,400 million people with a coastline of some 16,000 kilometers. Scotland is a country of five and a quarter million people with a coastline of 14,000 kilometres, hence the quarter of Europe's offshore marine tidal and wave and offshore wind potential. We also, of course, have approximately 40 years of oil and gas reserves and still an opportunity to correct a major policy mistake from the last generation and establish an oil and gas investment fund. Now, some people argue that there is no point in setting up such a fund in times of budget deficit. I disagree. As I mentioned earlier, between 2005 and 2010, Scotland had a relatively better fiscal position uh, than that of the rest of the United Kingdom. 
There'll be different ways, of course, of using that comparatively, and it is comparatively strong position. You could increase spending, you could reduce taxation, you could reduce borrowing, or you could also establish an oil fund for investment. At the very least, Scotland would have the option of investing an oil fund in years when it was running uh, a current budget surplus. We've been doing some work uh, in the Scottish Government. I'll rephrase that. That kind of implies that the Scottish Government isn't working all the time. <laughs> We're doing some analytical studies on this matter in the Scottish Government. If Scotland had been independent in 1979, oil revenues could have reduced our public sector debt from 39% of GDP in 1979 to zero by 1983-84. We then had to continue to run budget surpluses throughout the late 1980s. Scotland's per capita share of UK public sector debt in 2009-10 was approximately £65 billion. If we had been able to establish a sovereign wealth fund as North Sea oil revenue started to come on stream a generation ago, then it's likely that Scotland would have currently have net financial positive assets worth anything from £87 billion to £117 billion sterling. That is the past. That is the, the past that... Uh, is there and lost and cannot be corrected in terms of what happened, but it does provide an exemplar of what shouldn't be allowed to happen in the future. So let's look forward. Even if you invested a billion a year over 20 years, it could create an investment fund worth just under £30 billion within 20 years. Uh, a billion is about 8% of current oil and gas revenues. Norway, Alberta, Alaska, all the funds of this nature, as do many countries in the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia. This lecture theatre is named after Sheikh Zayed, the man who established the largest oil fund in the world, the oil fund of Abu Dhabi. In 1990, Norway established its oil fund, and the first investment was made in 1996, a modest contribution of just under £200 million sterling. Its returns have averaged 4.2% a year since 1998. It's now the largest pension fund in Europe with a value of approximately 1% of global equity markets. It's currently worth 3 trillion kroner or 330 billion pounds, over 65,000 pounds for every man, woman and child in Norway. Now, the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, towards the end of his career in public life, it is said to have likened the Thatcher government's use of privatisation proceeds, and this was a characteristically grand analogy he was making, as akin to selling off the family silver to pay for the grocery bill. The conduct of successive UK governments is in many ways far worse than that. It's as though they won the lottery jackpot uh, and then not bothered to set up the savings account. This weekend, I'll be meeting with Nobel laureate, former chief economist of the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, who I'm delighted to say is now a member of the Scottish Government's Council of Economic Advisers. It's appropriate that I'll meet Professor Stiglitz in Aberdeen, the energy capital of Europe, to discuss, among many other things, the benefits to Scotland of establishing such an oil fund. Speaking on the Newsnight, uh, a little over a year ago, he said, you, by which he meant the UK, have squandered that wealth. You took all the North Sea oil and you did very well for the period because you were living off that wealth. You mistook the success of the Thatcher era as a success based on good economic policy when it actually was a success based on living off wealth and leaving future generations impoverished. He then said it was imperative that an oil fund be set up to ensure that future generations can benefit from the wealth that still exists 
of the shores of Scotland. Now, the development of an oil fund for Scotland, once fiscal conditions allow, would promote economic responsibility and stability. Revenues could be invested rather than spent in current expenditure during good financial times and therefore counteract the effects of economic downturn. So these are five of the economic powers, the things you can do fiscally to boost growth and investment. But for the six, we need to ask, what is all of this fiscal manoeuvring designed to do? The aim and the purpose of such initiatives is to increase growth, uh, to broaden the base of the economy, to re-industrialise the country. On a day when the latest unemployment figures came out, there is a pressing demand uh, to look to the future. Our uh, largest cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow, this week have been named by the Foreign Investment magazine as Europe's two top large cities of the future. The 2011 Ernst & Young UK Attractiveness Survey report concluded that Scotland was the leading centre for foreign direct investment in the UK in terms of employment generation. Now, why are these things true? The reason is that a host of companies see Scotland's potential for growth, and I see in that potential the potential for reindustrialisation. Europe will need energy from the seas in the 21st century as it meets the challenge of becoming a low-carbon economy. It's an area where Scotland has a huge competitive advantage. We will be able to produce energy better and cheaper than anywhere else and in deeper waters. The organisation of Forum Scotland has indicated even using fairly conservative assumptions by 2020, Scotland's electricity exports could increase £2 billion per year. Scotland's world-class university research base will also come to the fore in this process. We have established the Saltire Prize, one of the largest challenge prizes for innovation in the world, in, in conjunction with National Geographic, the largest educational charity in the world, to encourage the development of commercially viable marine energy. We are supporting options to pioneer carbon capture and storage technology at Peterhead. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I delivered uh, uh, my Hogmanay message, that's, uh, that's the day before New Year uh, in Scotland, uh, from the National Museum uh, of Scotland. Uh, and in the background, uh, which has been recently refurbished and is absolutely glorious, and if you're coming to Scotland, make sure uh, you visit the wonderful National uh, Museum. Uh, a million people have taken that opportunity since it was opened in the, in the summer. And in the background, uh, as I was delivering the, the broadcast, we went through various of the rooms of, uh, of the National Museum. And in the background, there were things like James Watt's steam engine or uh, Alexander Fleming's Nobel Prize for the discovery of penicillin or, or John Logie Baird's first working colour television set invented in 1932, uh, about 40 years before colour television was applied uh, across the country. Yeah, I believe that... Uh, if we handle this opportunity correctly, in another generation within that National Museum, there'll be the, the great engineering designs of marine energy technology, uh, which will be a substantial part of the new energy systems which will power Europe in this century. These uh, museum the exhibits remind us that Scotland was crucial to the development of the Industrial Revolution. The advances made in clean energy in the next decades 
in my view, will be equally transformational for the world economy. I am determined that many of these, too, will be developed in Scotland. Finally, clean energy will facilitate a transformation of the Scottish economy. It provides a, an opportunity for that reindustrialisation. Scotland has a reputation for manufacturing and marine excellence, which goes back decades, when the phrase Clyde built was known around the world for quality. Now, that manufacturing base has been significantly reduced, of course, in part through inevitable economic change, but often through misguided policy. But Scotland does still have a strong core of skill in this field. Recently, I was in Dundee to launch Michelin's European Factory of the Futures. One of the workers on the assembly line said to me that engineering was part of Scotland's DNA. Indeed it is. And thanks to North Sea Oil, we have a particular experience of engineering and maintenance work in extreme weather conditions. That inheritance will be used as we start to manufacture the turbines that will power Scotland and wider Europe in the future. Major international companies such as Mitsubishi, Gamesa, Samsung, ABB, Alstom, Eon, Vattenfall are already working with leading Scottish energy and engineering companies such as Scottish and Southern, Scottish Power, Clyde Blowers, The Wood Group and Global Energy to invest in the development of pioneering wind and marine energy technologies. Indeed, just a, a few days ago, we saw the announcement the new offshore renewable energy catapult innovation centre for offshore renewables will be headquartered in Glasgow. That announcement builds on the £90 million engineering centre for Strathclyde University announced by the Scottish Government and Scottish Enterprise last year. That means up to 1,000 academic and industrial engineers were working in Glasgow, the city which dominated the marine engineering of the Industrial Revolution, planning that engineering leap forward to dictate the marine engineering of the coming century. Now, Scotland is becoming recognised internationally as a powerhouse in green energy. Scotland's great cities and ports are ideally placed to become a key hub for the rapidly growing and multi-billion pound offshore industry. My submission is we could do much more with greater powers. Currently, we don't even have control of the Crown Estate Commissioners who manage Scotland's seabed out to 12 nautical miles and almost half of its foreshore. The licences and therefore the revenues of much of our offshore energy are therefore in the hands of elected commissioners accountable to the United Kingdom Treasury. I might not mind so much if the money went direct to the royal family and to Her Majesty the Queen, uh, but as is normal in these matters, it goes to the United Kingdom Treasury. Now, devolving control of uh, Scotland's seabeds is a key ingredient of delivering the full benefits of the marine energy revolution for Scotland, ensuring that the benefits can be widely shared across communities. But as we uh, try to reindustrialize Scotland, it's ironic that a party which was responsible for much of the deindustrialization of Scotland is decrying those ambitions. Uh, Conservative Party attacks on renewables are actually an attack on existing and expected jobs which are hugely required given the economic record of successive Westminster government. It's an, uh, it is a, a campaign of economic vandalism, which hasn't been seen for many years. The attempt is pernicious, since Scotland's emerging success in renewable technology illustrates the economic benefit of the sector to our nation, our communities, our families. That should be encouraged, not attacked. Now, at the very heart of the case for independence is a simple principle. 
The people best placed to act in Scotland's best interests are those who choose to live and work in Scotland. Now, let me stress those who choose to live and work in Scotland. One of my best friends in life was uh, Bashir Ahmed, the MSP for Glasgow in the last parliament, tragically died a few years ago. Bashir's uh, favourite saying was that he wasn't interested in where people came from in Scotland, he was interested in where they were going. So those who live and work in our country. But many of the key decisions affecting Scotland are still taken by a government with less than a quarter of Scotland's MPs and whose dominant party, the Conservatives, have only one member of Parliament in Scotland. That is to say, more pandas than Tory MPs in Scotland <laughs> at the present moment. And I'm sure that this is a point where the Prime Minister, who is known for his humility in these matters, will remember uh, as we begin negotiations in Edinburgh tomorrow. Now, the consequences are seen in austerity measures that few people in Scotland voted for, the forthcoming legislation, potentially the, the crying of Scotland's best growth opportunity of the present generation. An independent Scotland would pursue policies of ambition and responsibility. We would use Scotland's natural resources, the skilled workforce, to build a sustainable economy. Based on producing goods and services that people actually want, we wouldn't live off the illusory profits of periodic asset booms. My submission, as I've been making uh, this tour around uh, England, uh, and uh, I'm delighted uh, to see sir, so many people here at the, at the London School of Economics. I, I should mention that uh, I had a thousand in Liverpool on, uh, on Monday night. Uh, also an invitation to run for mayor of that great city, which I, <laughs> which I had to decline. Uh, uh, I merely mentioned that in case a similar invitation was coming forward. <laughs> but one of the themes that I'm developing is that I do actually believe that England, the rest of the UK, has much to gain from the emergence of a secure, prosperous ally to the North. I think there is an enormous amount to be gained in terms of relationship from the knowledge that countries should raise their own taxes and pay their own bills, stand on their own feet economically, the message that sends in terms of people's self-esteem both individually and collectively as a country is of huge importance in terms of real economic development and relationships with others. My submission is an independent Scotland only seeks to make a responsible contribution to the European and world stage and that would benefit in a very real fundamental sense all of the nations of these islands. Thank you very much indeed.